This is the Nature Pastcast, each month raiding Nature's archive and looking at key moments in science. In this show, nature is concerned with finding extraterrestrial life. Nature, Volume 365, 21st October 1993. So in October of 1993, uh, Carl Sagan and several colleagues uh, published a research article uh, in Nature with really a a remarkable discovery. They uh, found highly suggestive, perhaps conclusive evidence for having found uh, life on a planet uh, in the universe. Galileo spacecraft found evidence of abundant gaseous oxygen, a widely distributed surface pigment, and atmospheric methane, an extreme thermodynamic disequilibrium. Moreover, the presence of narrowband, pulsed, amplitude-modulated radio transmission seems uniquely attributable to intelligence. My name is David Kaiser. Uh, I teach physics and the history science uh, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Remarkably enough, in the 1990s, you could publish an article claiming you'd found uh, life on Earth. A search for life on Earth from the Galileo spacecraft. Which was en route to Jupiter, uh, but sort of uh, fortuitously, because of the particular orbital path that it would have to take to get there, um, it had to sort of linger relatively close to the Earth. So it was in space and looking at its near neighbor, uh, the planet Earth. So this is a a quite classic paper that uses the Earth as a test case. Can you detect life on on the Earth? So they use a Galileo spacecraft, spun it round, pointed it back to the Earth and asked a very simple question, can we see any signatures of life? And of course they did. (laughs) I'm Charles Cockell and I'm an astrobiologist at the University of Edinburgh. Now we're entering into a period of finding Earth-like planets around other stars, it's obviously an area that should be of interest to biologists about the, the implications of finding Earth-like planets and looking for life on them. Carl Sagan, W. Reed Thompson, Robert Carlson, Donald Gurnett and Charles Horde. These observations constitute a control experiment for the search for extraterrestrial life by modern interplanetary spacecraft. Sagan and his colleagues thought here was a, here was a great way to test um, general detection schemes for when they could be sending multiple probes further away from Earth. How, could we indeed try to, try to look uh, at other objects in the solar system, perhaps even someday even further away? And what would we need to know to look for to try to detect signs of, of life? In what follows, we do not assume properties of life otherwise known on Earth, but instead attempt to derive our conclusions from Galileo data and first principles alone. They find, through, just through the, through, the, through the instruments on the spacecraft, not by prior knowledge, there is tremendously you know, conclusive evidence that there's lots of um, water on this, new, on this planet, the planet Earth. Some of the water is frozen, they could even tell that. Some of it was in humongous oceans, they could tell that from the patterns of, uh, detected by these um, instruments on the spacecraft. They saw um, methane and oxygen in the atmosphere, which are two unusual gases to have 
uh, in an atmosphere at the same time without life. That's a quite strong signature that you've got a disequilibrium, a chemical disequilibrium, which suggests that there's something active going on on the planetary surface. It's not just chemistry, in fact, biology producing oxygen. Once candidate disequilibria are identified, alternative explanations must be eliminated. Life is the hypothesis of last resort. All my life I've wondered about life beyond the Earth. On those countless other planets that we think circle other suns, is there also life? Might the beings of other worlds resemble us, or would they be astonishingly different? Sagan was a remarkably multifaceted individual. So he began life, his career, as uh, basically an astronomer, astrophysicist, um, with strong interest in what might we might now consider kind of Earth sciences or Earth and planetary sciences. Uh, so not only astronomy as in looking through telescopes and seeing what one sees, but trying to understand how uh, geographical formations on Earth might help us understand rocky objects in the sky, a really wide range of scientific interests uh, on, in their own right. And then, of course, became a masterful explainer of esoterica to, to non-specialists. Uh, he had certainly a great passion for science policy throughout much of his career, uh, for politics more broadly. And then he also had a successful career as a novelist, as a, a science fiction author. There was, uh, right at this time, in fact, the time the paper was published, there were ferocious debates. In fact, now I see it virtually the very same week this was published, in October of 1993. There were ferocious debates uh, in the U.S. Congress over cutting all funding for a number of scientific projects, including what was called SETI, the Search for um, Extraterrestrial Intelligence, with which Sagan had also been associated. This paper was not about SETI. It was about finding any forms of life or evidence for life. But SETI had, had, um, had been really raked over the coals, many historians would say unfairly or inappropriately, in the U.S. Congress, a kind of political theater, at a time not unlike today of very harsh um, economic climate, of uh, hard decisions about priorities and what should get funding. Uh, but, the, but SETI, the search for, it was, as it was often called little green men, suffered from the so-called giggle factor. Why is taxpayer money being spent to, to search for Martians? You know, it was, it was very easy to ridicule, especially in the U.S. Congress. So, so I think many people like Sagan had to be especially uh, careful about their pronouncements about life on other planets, intelligent or otherwise, uh, about um, the reasons to pursue this as, a, as real science. During the Galileo flyby, the plasma wave instrument detected radio signals plausibly escaping through the nightside ionosphere from ground-based radio transmitters. Of all Galileo's science measurements, these signals provide the only indication of intelligent technological life on Earth. For decades, this, the, the game in SETI had been to reason about particular parts of the radio wave spectrum that would be kind of uh, golden areas to search. Uh, for, these, for these unexpected uh, communications. I'm Frank Drake. I am a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. I did my graduate work at Harvard University in the 1950s. I got my PhD there and went immediately on the staff of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, then being established in Greenbank, West Virginia. When we first started talking about searching for extraterrestrial intelligence signals, we were confronting a taboo that existed in astronomy at that time. 
And this had come about through the spurious reports of detections of life on Mars and canals on Mars and all of that, which took place in the early part of the 20th century. This had tainted the subject. And uh, I, being young, was a little foolish and was not dis uh, dissuaded by that attitude and proceeded to propose that we search because at that time, for the first time, we had instruments sensitive to enough to detect the signals we were then transmitting from the nearest stars to the sun. All the extraterrestrials had to be was like us, and we could detect them. Back then, it was still, you know, really hypothetical. And so Frank uh, Drake wrote out this equation, just a just focused discussion, actually, at an upcoming conference. It was meant to say, what are the issues to think about, and can we put almost like placeholders? How many planets, how many of those, what fraction of those planets would have conditions suitable for life, at least as we know it? That's some smaller fraction than all the planets out there, presumably. How many of those uh, planets would then, would, would uh, the spark of life somehow have happened in ways perhaps like what had happened on Earth or otherwise? And so on. And, and, and the last factor in the Drake equation was, what's the expected lifetime of such civilizations if they ever did happen? And so I organized that, and I invited all the people in the world that I knew of that were thinking in this area, all 12 of them. <laughs> And we brought them to Green Bank in November of 1961. At that time, there's only one factor we really knew, which was the rate of star formation in our galaxy. The other six uh, were ones about which we had almost no observational data and even theories. You have to be optimistic because you have to believe that, in fact, other civilizations do as we do, develop a high technology, exploit it, and in the process make their presence known. People who work in SETI are very optimistic that when we find other civilizations, they will turn out to be friendly civilizations. Uh, in fact, the unfriendly ones have all probably destroyed themselves. Uh, optimism is always a good thing. It drives people forward. There's a very fine line between being optimistic and framing science in a way that your whole hope is to find extraterrestrial life, extraterrestrial intelligence, and then when you don't find it, you see that as a failure of science, which it's not. Um, but there's nothing wrong with optimism. You need that to keep going, particularly when you're trying to test a hypothesis and you haven't got any data uh, yet, which is the case for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So certainly people who dedicate their lives to searching for extraterrestrial intelligence and that's their one focus need a lot of optimism. We don't know what the probability of finding it is, but if we did find it, of course, the implications would be huge. So it's good that there are people uh, doing searches for extraterrestrial intelligence. So I would say that the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is now sort of second order question that comes after finding Earth-like planets that might have any life at all. It's inevitable that to be a species trying to answer the question of life elsewhere, you have to have originated from a planet where there was an origin of life and where there was the evolution of, of photosynthesis that produced all the organic carbon and oxygen that we use to respire and power our brains and allow us to build uh, planet-searching telescopes. But we just don't know how common that is throughout the rest of the universe. The latest work, the amazing work going on in exoplanet astronomy, is on objects, uh, planets, far outside our own solar system. So within our galaxy, but the galaxy is a really big place. And so this is not a place where Earth-based spacecraft are flying by anywhere, anywhere anytime soon. 
But the expectation is that in the coming decades, maybe even the next two decades, that will change and there will be um, uh, space telescopes and improved ground-based observations that will allow scientists to look at the atmospheric composition of rocky Earth-like planets elsewhere. So we'll be able to test this idea on other planets. hypothesis is that there's life elsewhere in the universe and we don't care what the answer to that is. Certainly it would be fascinating if the answer was yes there's life elsewhere but no life in the rest of the universe would be a stunning scientific discovery. It just means that the negative outcome tells us something about how special biology is in the places where it does exist. Although a great deal more exploration remains to be done, our results are consistent with the hypothesis that widespread biological activity now exists of all the worlds in this solar system only on Earth. You've been listening to The Nature Pastcast, produced by me, Kerry Smith, with contributions from Frank Drake, David Kaiser and Charles Coquel. Next time, we go all the way back to nature's very first issue in November 1869.